The Issues Etc. Book of the Month for January would make a great gift for your pastor. It's the New Concordia Commentary on John, chapter 7, verse 2, to chapter 12, verse 50. This latest Concordia Commentary is written by Issues Etc. regular guest, Dr. Bill Weinrich. Learn more about our January Book of the Month at issuesetc.org or by calling Concordia Publishing House 1-800-325-3040. The New Concordia Commentary on John 7, 2 to 1250. The hymn of the day for this coming Sunday, O Christ, our true and only light. If we look forward to Sunday morning, we will see that light of Christ shining, not only on the promised covenant Old Testament people, but upon the Gentile world as well. Greetings and welcome to Issues Etc. live on this Tuesday afternoon, January the 17th. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for tuning us in. Pastor Sean Denzer joins us to look forward to Sunday morning according to the three-year lectionary, the third Sunday after the Epiphany. Delano Squires will be alongside from the DeVos Center for Life, Religion, and Family at the Heritage Foundation. We'll be talking about being pro-family and pro-men. And then we'll teach a Sunday school lesson with Pastor Tom Baker of Law and Gospel. We'll be in John 10 and Psalm 23, talking about Jesus the Good Shepherd. Pastor Sean Denzer is Director of Worship for the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Sean, welcome back. Great to be back, Todd. How are the propers of this coming Sunday, in a way, transitioning us from John the Baptist's ministry of preparation to Jesus' ministry of fulfillment? Sure. So we already definitely had that handoff last week in John. And in a way, also, this is the Sunday where we transition back into the three years kind of great theme, which is to focus on the three synoptic gospels. So we're going back to Matthew today. But we have a great hinge right at the beginning of our gospel reading where it talks about John being imprisoned and then Christ goes on with the rest of his ministry. So both in the lives of these men, as well as in their actions, we see that John decreases, as he says, and Christ increases. Why is that necessary? That we have, even not only at the time of John the Baptist, but we here and now still need John the Baptist to take us to Jesus. So there's kind of two reasons. One is encapsulated in John's own understanding and it, indeed the, the scriptures foretelling of what his preaching is going to be. And the other is is necessary for something that, uh, well, really shows up later in the book of Acts. So the first is John's main preaching is preparatory by clearing the way for the Lord. And the clearing that he has is not particularly, you know, he's not clearing brush so, so Jesus, uh, the great king, can wander through. He's clearing out sin. He's preaching repentance so that the forgiveness of sins can hit home. This really is the insight of the law and the gospel, that the law convicts of sin. It shows a desperate problem in humans that can't be overcome by our own actions or by forgetting about it. But the Christ Jesus comes to remedy it by his death and his resurrection. So with that preaching that we heard last week, Behold the Lamb of God, even John's preaching has turned toward 
the gospel, the remedy to our problem, not just calling it out. But now we get to see Jesus come and indeed remedy these problems and gather to him some apostles who are also going to be preaching it as well. And the second reason why this is important is to understand rightly the way the Old Testament and the New Testament fit together. If you just have the words old and new, which you can find in the scriptures themselves describing the time before Christ compared to the time when Christ comes and after, you might think that it's just entirely new. Maybe it's even repudiating and destroying everything that came before it or supplanting it in some ways. There are parts of that that are accurate, but not entirely. So we're certainly going to see right off the bat, as is Matthew's interest, that the Old Testament knew about Jesus, was talking about him even before he came, but also that John the Baptist ministry particularly also is going to be continued. Yes, the one who comes after me is greater than me. His baptism is with fire and the Holy Spirit, not just with water, according to John's kind of humble way of speaking. But really what John did prepared so that, just as we saw last week, his apostles peel off from him and follow Jesus as if this is the natural conclusion of John's teaching, is that they should continue with Christ. And so the same is for us as well. So Jesus' ministry is a continuation and a fulfillment of John's. Absolutely. And we'll see that quite clear, I think, in today's gospel, which both has him sounding exactly like John the Baptist and him doing something that we never saw with John. We also will be seeing the call of more disciples, or as you say, the recalling of disciples. Why is that? Yeah, this is uh, interesting. It's just from the fact that we've done something the three-year lecture doesn't usually like to do, which is to look at more than one gospel. So we had John chapter one last week, and this week we have Matthew. And uh, as a result, we get to hear the call of Simon and Andrew together from different angles. And in fact, we might have to talk a little later about whether these are contradictory accounts or whether there's a way to harmonize them and see them as maybe uh, different occasions. But in any case, both Andrew and Peter are called, and then also that some of the other disciples are beginning to be called. And we hear the emblematic statement of that when he calls these particular 12 to come and to follow me, and also that he's going to give them a new task from what they had started doing. What are some connecting themes of these propers we'll be looking at? As we look across all these texts, two things are kind of there. One is plain and simple geography. That might not seem to be a very good connection, but it's one that the Old Testament and Jesus in today's gospel makes very directly. And that is one we've mentioned already, the coastlands, that area kind of getting closer to Tyre and Sidon called Galilee at the time of Jesus, called the land the property of Zebulun and Naphtali once the promised land was settled by the Israelites. This area is connected with the Gentiles. It's known as being the Gentile coastlands, their territory. As we said, the northern tribes had been carried off and dissipated. They're lost tribes, as we call them. And this territory in particular then becomes kind of the seat of Philistine and sea peoples. So in the mind of the prophets, this is always spoken of as Gentile coastlands. And now we see that this is the place where Jesus has his base of operation. He's working in Galilee. His hometown city kind of his base of operations is Capernaum there on the Sea of Galilee. 
And of course, his mission, as we'll see, fully explained by the end of the gospel, is not just to the lost sheep of Israel, but in fact, to all nations, which is already being hinted at here, as it was in the prophets. I guess a second connecting theme, which doesn't always happen, but it can also bring in the epistle reading, which is running its own track through 1 Corinthians, is to follow Christ Jesus. So we see that he has his disciples who are following him. We'll see about a dispute about who we're following and how we're named in Paul's writing to the Corinthians. The intro it is from Psalm 22. How does it read and what would you say about it? I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. All the families of the nation shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. So these words are from the end of Psalm 22, which is prophetic of Christ all the way through. But interesting, we always connect this psalm because of its opening verses with the death of Jesus. It's featured prominently during Holy Week, Palm Sunday, all throughout the week, and especially on Monday, Thursday, when the altar is stripped. And so we hear the voice of Jesus as he quoted it, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The end, however, begins to look toward his posterity, the fact that Christ will in fact rise again, that even he has hope, and that the message of what he's accomplished will be for all people, and that there will in fact be those who follow him, right? Uh, This seed is the one in whom all the ends of the world are blessed. And the antiphon that we have from verse 22 speaks about telling the Lord's name to brothers, This might actually fit a little better with last week's gospel, actually, since we had Andrew, quite literally, grabbing his brother Simon and telling him, we found the Messiah. But certainly, it still fits well with the whole understanding of these disciples being called and bringing together many people into one church. So, speaking not just about the people of Israel that would naturally be ruled by any king of the Jews, but the fact that even the Gentiles, even the nations, will honor this one as king. So, maybe a foreshadowing of what is to come when Christ faces his cross. What is the collect? How does it read? Almighty and everlasting God, mercifully look upon our infirmities and stretch forth the hand of your majesty to heal and defend us. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. This traditionally is paired with the reading of Jesus healing a man who has leprosy, followed by the centurion that comes to Jesus and says, I'm not worthy that you should come under my roof, but say the word, my soul will be healed, and uh, understands that Jesus has authority from God in the same way that uh, maybe a soldier, his word is his command. So healing uh, does come into our gospel reading at the end. It comes in just at the very end after we've had kind of the main calling of these disciples to talk about how Jesus goes through all of Galilee, how he is healing people of all sorts of diseases and afflictions and demons. 
so it kind of lays out just all of these categories and says Jesus is righting the wrongs everywhere he goes. So the simple prayer that he would look on our infirmities doesn't specify which ones here, because whatever they are, whether a body of mind, even infirmities of the soul, that he would stretch out his hand to heal and defend us. It still does fit fortuitously quite well with today's gospel. Pastor Sean Denzer is our guest. We're looking forward to Sunday morning, according to the three-year lectionary, the third Sunday after the Epiphany. We'll get into the Old Testament reading from the prophet Isaiah next. Several Issues Etc. regular guests are candidates for leadership positions in the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Every LCMS congregation has received nomination forms for the President and Vice Presidents of Synod. Please encourage your pastor and congregational leaders to fill out and return these nomination forms before February 28th of 2023. Learn more at issuesetc.org 2023 nominations. issuesetc.org 2023 nominations. This fall in creation is bested by tornado, hurricane, flood, pandemic, and more. LCMS Disaster Response helps our congregations, their pastors, and other church workers to reach out to their members and neighbors with mercy, which flows from Christ's altar. We offer quality volunteer training, help for congregational readiness and response, and disaster grant funding. To learn more, visit lcms.org disaster. That's lcms.org disaster. Your daily Lutheran Bible class. You're listening to Issues Etc. Memoria Press award-winning Latin programs have successfully taught hundreds of thousands of students across the world. Their easy-to-use, step-by-step Latin curriculum provides students with an academic vocabulary, a mastery of English grammar, and strong critical thinking skills. If you're interested in learning more, visit memoriapress.com and save $5 on your next purchase by using the coupon code LPR23. Memoria Press, saving Western civilization one student at a time. Are you on the road to paradise in the southern Puget Sound area of Western Washington, but looking for a traditional liturgical Lutheran congregation in classical Lutheran elementary school? Parkland Lutheran Church and School in Tacoma, a member of the Evangelical Lutheran Synod, is the place to find our Savior's rest on Sunday mornings and Monday evenings. Visit our website at parklandlutheran.org for service times and downloadable sermons. Preaching, teaching, and distributing Christ and Him crucified every week. Welcome back. I'm Todd Wilkin. We're looking forward to Sunday morning. According to the three-year lectionary, Pastor Sean Denzer, Director of Worship for the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, is our guest. Sean, if you would, the Old Testament reading, Isaiah 9, 1 through 4, how does it read and what would you have to say about it? There will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, But in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. You have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. 
For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken, as on the day of Midian. She who is in anguish is the people of Israel. And in the former time, why? Because the Lord had brought all of those tribes into destruction by the Assyrians. But that place is going to be glorious in the later time that the prophet hasn't quite fully revealed to us yet. And that's when that place, both beyond the Jordan and up in the area of Galilee, the Galilee of the Gentiles, uh, will become glorious. This is referring to the time of Christ Jesus when he is present on this earth and all the time since when the Gentiles are welcomed into his salvation and brought into him. So we see this, the light that shines enlightening those who dwell in darkness. That's certainly clear for the darkened Gentiles in their misunderstandings. They don't have the light of God's Torah. They don't have what St. Paul says are of great advantage and ought to have really helped the Israelites to stay close to Christ Jesus, that they had all the promises from God, all the oracles from God. And yet, as we read in Romans, they were darkened as well. Hearing this now after the time of its fulfillment, after Christ has come, after he quite literally has been working in this Gentile coastland territories, after he in fact has died and is risen and has made it clear that the message is for all people and we're to go to all nations with the gospel, it's strange because it is not the Gentiles by and large that are the ones in darkness. Maybe we tend to think of the dark continent of Africa being the place where there are no Christians, but that's at this point in time pretty wrong. Frankly, there are plenty more Christians in Africa than there are even in the United States. Whereas it is the Jewish people, those who still identify with Israel, with Jewish heritage, they're the ones who actually have become dark now, who, who reject the Messiah, who don't receive it, as well as other nations too, of course. But the message here is that there is great joy in seeing the light of Christ Jesus, which is, yes, all now for the nations as well. So in the context, the way that Isaiah is saying it, we see that it's Israel rejoicing that the Gentile oppressors have now been removed. So think about Israel in this very precarious position, kind of right in between all these great other nations on a main roadway right by the sea. Easy pickings for anybody, right? Everybody who rolls through there has to just trounce Israel on the way through. And yet the Lord had promised when the judges ruled in Israel that he would be the savior of his people, that they were to trust in him. Every time they fell away, of course, he had to raise up a judge to save them again until finally they uh, insulted him by asking for a king. We see that finally uh, very clearly in the time of Jesus when there is peace, but it's the peace not of the Israelites, but of the Romans who are ruling, who are oppressing to some degree the people of Israel. So I think from this prophecy, if we're thinking very limited, it's easy to see how maybe it could be misunderstood to say there's going to be a Messiah who comes to rescue our nation, our people in a secular sense almost, from their oppression by the Romans, which is certainly what some thought Christ would be. He would be the one who'd kind of be a political hero for them. But as we see, the Lord's interest is far greater. It will be like the day of Midian, uh, the day when the Lord smashed the enemies, but far more because this joy will come to the darkened people. This joy will come to the Gentiles as well.
So we're laying the groundwork then for the Gentile mission that at the end of Matthew's gospel is fully revealed to us. Do we find similar themes in the psalm appointed, Psalm 27? Read it out for us. It's a well-known psalm. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked, even my enemies and my foes, came upon me to eat up my flesh, it is they who stumbled and fell. Though a host should encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war should rise against me, in this I will be confident. One thing have I desired of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For in the time of trouble he shall hide me in his pavilion. In the secret of his tabernacle shall he hide me. He will set me upon a rock. And now my head will be lifted up above my enemies round about me. Therefore, I will offer in his tabernacle sacrifices of joy. I will sing, yea, I will sing praises unto the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry with my voice, have mercy upon me and answer me. When you said, seek my face, my heart said to you, your face, Lord, will I seek. Do not hide your face from me. Do not put your servant away in anger, for you have been my help. Leave me not, neither forsake me. O God of my salvation. So in Psalm 27, which I think is a favorite of many, it's one that ends, wait in the Lord, be of good courage, and he will strengthen your heart. Wait, I say on the Lord, a beloved phrase, as well as the opening, my light and my salvation, who can I be afraid of? Just the first portion of it here is assigned as the psalm, and it draws on the theme of light that continues through all of Epiphany, but especially in our Old Testament reading where the light is coming to those who dwelt in darkness. But also it speaks about casting off the oppression. It mentions the enemies encamped against me. It looks to the Lord for rescue and for salvation and for strength, which certainly is still the case, and we ought to look to him as well. It may also be reflective of that mention of Midian. Uh, So uh, there were at least two defeats of Midian. One was way back in the time of Balaam and his uh, donkey in the middle of the road. But the more recent one in memory would have been Gideon, the judge who was raised up to defeat the armies of Midian very dramatically and not, of course, by his own strength, as the Lord made clear. So he took Gideon's army and by all of those creative ways, reduced it down to 300 men to take on this huge battle force. And yet all they had to do was gather around the encampment and uh, you know, break their pots and blow their horns. And the angel of the Lord, along with their own confusion, caused the Midianites to kill each other. And they won the day hardly without even fighting. All of this to say, who is the one who rises up for his people, who rescues them, who brings light to them when they've been in darkness? It's not something they bring themselves out of. It's the Lord and his salvation rising up to save them. And certainly that's the point of Christ in his advent among us, his presence here. We'll be looking at the epistle reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 1 as we look forward to Sunday morning according to the three-year lectionary with Pastor Sean Denzer, Director of Worship for the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, after the break. The Issues Etc. Book of the Month for January would make a great gift for your pastor. It's the New Concordia Commentary on John, chapter 7, verse 2, to chapter 12, verse 50. This latest Concordia Commentary is written by Issues Etc. regular guest, Dr. Bill Weinrich. Learn more about our January Book of the Month at issuesetc.org 
or by calling Concordia Publishing House 1-800-325-3040, the new Concordia commentary on John 7-2-1250. This week on The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, we dig still further into St. Luke's Gospel with Boy with an Unclean Spirit. Who is the greatest? Samaritans reject Jesus, the cost of following Christ, and sending of the 72. Join me, Pastor Will Whedon, for the Word of the Lord Endures Forever, your daily 15-minute verse-by-verse Bible study on demand. Listen at thewordendures.org or your favorite podcast provider. Equipping the priesthood of all believers, you're listening to Issues Etc. Did you know that Luther Academy has been providing continuing education for confessional Lutheran pastors and laypeople worldwide for more than 20 years? Luther Academy promotes confessional Lutheran theology through conferences, scholarly exchanges, and publications like Logia, the Confessional Lutheran Dogmatic Series, and Luther Digest. Find out more about Luther Academy and sign up for their free email newsletter at lutheracademy.com. lutheracademy.com. Many educational institutions are governed by the whims of culture and are increasingly hostile to the Word of God. In contrast, Faith Lutheran School in Plano, Texas, provides classical Lutheran education rooted in God's Word for students preschool through grade 12. Simply put, we equip students to stand firm in the faith through solid education focused on wisdom and virtue. We offer in-person instruction as well as live online classes for remote learning. To learn more, visit flsplano.org, flsplano.org. Welcome back. I'm Todd Wilkin. This is Issues Etc. Pastor Sean Denzer, Director of Worship for the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, is our guest as we look forward to Sunday morning according to the three-year lectionary. Sean, we come to the epistle, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning at verse 10 through 18. As you mentioned before in previous conversations, this is Electio Continua. We're just picking up where we left off. How does it read? I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Well, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you, except for Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the house of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So Paul urges here, there should be no divisions in the church. This is really a hint at what is to come in his whole big letter to the Corinthians, the first letter that is, and especially it comes up again when they talk about the Lord's Supper and uh, the preparation for the Lord's Supper in chapters 10 and 11. So you'll have to remember that. I think we don't get to hear that until maybe even year C. So it's a little divided up for us. The point of it is this, there should be no factions, particularly no factions that are following after 
personalities as if they were gurus. So it is Jesus himself, as we'll see in the gospel, who said he wants his apostles, he wants his men to go out to follow him and then to teach and to preach to all the world, to bring the gospel and to impart it personally to other people. But by that, it wasn't as if the Lord was saying, I want these churches to be established on these men or on their particular charisma, but I want it always built on me. Jesus says this to Peter as well, right? You are Peter, and on this rock, the rock of his confession, the rock of Christ Jesus, certainly not little Peter, I will build my church. So he's the one who's going to build it, and the gates of hell, therefore, will not prevail against it. Paul is saying a similar thing here. He mentions Apollos, that's that charismatic preacher that's been through there, the one who also in Acts didn't quite seem to understand that John's baptism was leading up to and pointing toward Jesus, because he was among those who didn't seem to understand that the Holy Spirit had come. Likewise, there's Cephas, that's the other name for Simon Peter. Uh, and then there's even these people who say, well, I follow Christ. It's interesting uh, whether I follow Christ is the right answer that everyone should have been saying, or whether actually it's just part of the scolding that Paul's giving as well. Picture it like this. Some people are saying, I follow this guy. I think he's got it right. Some people are saying, I follow that guy. I think he has it right. Other people are saying, you know what? I'm better than all of you because I'm a Christian. I just follow Jesus. I just follow the Bible, some people would say today, without actually going into, well, what does the Bible say and mean? And recognizing that if there is a distinction or a division, it might be necessary so that the truth could be found. In fact, that's what Paul will end up saying when we do get to chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians. The point is that certainly no name should be used as a way to divide the church, but even the name of Christ or even the resistance to acknowledging division can be a way of propping me up as the one who's doing the right thing. I'm the one who's rising above your petty squabbles and I'm just naturally a Christian. To use the name of Christ as a dividing wedge to prop yourself up over against others. That's just as bad, actually, as using a particular name like Paul or Peter, etc. I think it should give us pause whenever we say that phrase, I'm acting in the name of or on behalf of. When we do things, it's not to be on behalf of me or on behalf of the church or on behalf of even my desires or my family, here it's to be in the name of Jesus. The ministry in particular is always in the name of Jesus Christ. And therefore, our followings should never be of particular people. The gradual, it's our seasonal gradual, but remind us what it is. Praise the Lord, all nations, extol him, all peoples, for great is his steadfast love toward us, and the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Ascribe to the Lord glory, do his name, bring an offering and come into his courts. Here we have the Gentiles again, we're still in Galilee, but maybe today also we want to mention the name of the Lord. That's where we ascribe our glory, kind of a nice following if you choose to sing the gradual at this point rather than before the epistle, then you would really hear it as a uh, either a leading into or a coming out of that. Who do you follow? Are you Christ's? Are you Paul's? No, the name of the Lord is the one that we ascribe glory and praise. He's the one we're named for, no one else. The verse, well, it's kind of taken from both Jesus and John's ministry, isn't it? 
That's right. So it's from the time Jesus began to preach saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In some ways, it does seem like they maybe just took the whole verse. I wonder if it'd be wiser to just have the statement from Jesus rather than the verse that's, uh, of course, marked in our Bibles. But maybe it is worth having that introduction, that narrative there that says this is the content of Jesus preaching. And so that we don't get it confused with John, since we heard this already in Advent 2, when John was saying literally the same words, repent for the kingdom is at hand. And this would have been great, by the way, if we had had it back in Advent 2, but eh, it was a different paragraph there. Take us into the gospel, Matthew 4, verses 12 through 25. When Jesus heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee, and leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled, here it is, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death On them a light has dawned. From that time Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and his brother, Andrew, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them. Immediately they left their boat and their father and followed him. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, and paralytics, and he healed them. And a great crowd followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. Well, we start with the word that John has been arrested And this is when Jesus withdraws into Galilee. So maybe putting some distance between himself and Herod or leaving that way across the Jordan and now coming into this Gentile territory. But we see also that it's more than just, well, he's going to move away. It's that he is now bringing his message to bear. Now he is the one who takes up the the mantle of the, the one who is sent from the Lord, except Christ takes it up in a way that is continuous, but different than John's. So he comes not just as a prophet or more than a prophet even, but he comes as the Lord, the Messiah who has arrived. We've talked a lot about the coastlands and the Gentiles. We have the quotation quite directly in Matthew's gospel, rehearsing that Old Testament that we heard that was paired with it. And we see that even goes on to quote, not just the geography, but the meaning of it, right? That the people there get to see the light. So Matthew wants us to see that Jesus is this light who is now shining and enlightening the people in darkness. Very interesting. There's kind of adjustment or a massaging of uh, that passage from Isaiah so that it has this other phrase in it, not just in the place of darkness, but in the shadow 
of death. That's the place where the light has shined. Where does that come from? We we know that phrase best probably from Psalm 23. I walk through the valley of the shadow of death and I don't fear because I have my good shepherd with me. Probably not that, but probably Psalm 107, which also mentions this shadow of death. Psalm 107 mentions it a couple times, and in both sections where it mentions this phrase, it talks about prison. So it mentions it in verse 10, those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death bound in affliction and iron. Likewise, verse 14, he brought them out of darkness and the shadow of death. He broke their bonds in sunder. Why mention the shadow of death? Well, John's just been put into prison here. And so there's a message that even he is to have hope in the one who releases the captives. A little bit of a foreshadowing of John's question and answer to Jesus. Are you really the one? I mean, I'm still sitting in prison. Maybe a good reason to second guess or at least to get a confirmation from Jesus. But of course, Jesus is the one who has come. And Zechariah quotes the same phrase, too, when he says that uh, we are brought out of the uh, shadow of death and the day star shines upon us and, uh, and brings joy to us. And Jesus then begins preaching, and we don't have the whole text of his sermon, but we certainly have this famous line. And immediately we see it's exactly the same as what John the Baptist is preaching. So there's two things that this shows us. One is, of course, that just as John came preaching about one who is to come, so Jesus shows that he's the one John was talking about by saying the same message. But here is where this usual translation of this is maybe known better as repent for the end is near, right? And this is what the people who are apocalyptic on the roadside wear on their sandwich boards. Near could be an okay way to translate it, but at hand is quite good because it doesn't quite tell us, are you saying it's right here in front of me? Are you saying it's about to happen? And that ambiguity here is very helpful. So Now we understand, and we will by the end of the gospel, John meant it, prepare because the Lord is coming. This is the time of his advent. And even as John was preaching, Jesus was in the world, although John did not know him as we heard last Sunday. But Jesus now says this because it's more than the kingdom or the time is around, but rather he is announcing that the king himself has come and he's talking about himself. And we'll see that then demonstrated in all of his deeds and his preaching throughout the rest of the gospel. So the kingdom of heaven uh, refers to Jesus Christ. He's the one who is ruling and reigning, and he indeed has come. So there's a, while the words are the same, it comes back to preparation and fulfillment, doesn't it? That Jesus actually is, as you said, the kingdom in, in one man. Precisely. And we've, we've said this before. We've said that he is Israel kind of bottled up in one man in the same way he is the whole rule of Israel bottled up in one man as well. This is where our common kind of mnemonic of prophet, priest, and king uh, as the offices comprised in the single office of Christ. Uh, you can see then the kingliness of Jesus here that he is going to be reigning. And 
Maybe uh, it's worth mentioning again that the word repent is used in multiple ways in the Bible. Sometimes it's used very narrowly to refer simply to the act of contrition, simply to uh, confessing your sins, to examining yourself, to to recognizing your sin in the light of God's law and, and correcting it. But it also includes looking to the Lord for remedy. So this repentance is not only a call to shape up or say you're sorry, but it is in fact a call to have a a total renovation because Christ is now here. And the energy for that all comes from him and his gospel, his salvation that he is working for his people. Pastor Sean Denzer, Director of Worship for the Lutheran Church of Missouri Synod, is our guest. We're looking forward to Sunday morning, according to the three-year lectionary. We will take up Jesus' statement, Fishers of Men, next. If you appreciate Issues Etc., our 24-7 music and talk stations, and our daily verse-by-verse Bible study, The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, please include a bequest in your will or trust for these worldwide media resources. Bequests aren't subject to federal tax or capital gains taxes. Ensure your children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren the opportunity to listen by including a bequest in your will or trust for Issues Etc., Lutheran Public Radio, and the word of the Lord endures forever. Since 1973, pro-life advocates have been gathering annually in Washington, D.C. to march for unborn life. And since the overturning of Roe v. Wade last year, this movement has taken on new direction and new focus. To learn more, pick up your copy of the January issue of The Lutheran Witness, titled Life After Roe, and learn more about what the pro-life movement is now doing to stand up for life. Visit cph.org witness or witness.lsms.org to learn more. The Lutheran Witness, helping you interpret the world from a Lutheran perspective. Old Theology, New Technology, you're listening to Issues Etc. Have you ever wished you could see Ad Crucem's products before buying them? Well, you can. Come visit us at our workshop in Littleton, Colorado, and watch how we make our Christmas ornaments and print our icons. Check out the quality and fabric of our church banners, or choose some greeting cards, posters, or jewellery. Of course, if you can't make it to Colorado, we're always open online. For details and directions, visit adcrucem.com. That's A-D-C-R-U-C-E-M dot com. Oh Lord, open my lips. Listen to chapel services live weekday mornings from Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Morning Chapel from Kramer Chapel. Live weekday mornings at 9 Central, 10 Eastern, 8 Mountain, and 7 Pacific at issuesetc.org. The final scene of Jesus' public ministry is one of incomprehension. Jesus hides himself from them by withdrawing himself to his coming passion. He doesn't go into hiding, but the narrative now turns to a long and detailed instruction to the disciples how they will go on to live in this sacrifice and resurrection. To the world of men, Jesus will no longer appear except through the preaching of those who are sent by him. That's some insight from the Issues Etc. Book of the Month for January, the Concordia Commentary on John, chapter 7, verse 2 through 12, verse 50. By Issues Etc. regular guest, Dr. Bill Weinrich. 
You can find out more about this great commentary at our website, issuesetc.org, or call Concordia Publishing House 1-800-325-3040, 1-800-325-3040. Pastor Sean Denzer is our guest. We're looking forward to Sunday morning. He's Director of Worship for the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Sean, what should we make of Jesus' statement, fishers of men? I think there's a way in which the Lord is simply playing on what they're doing. I've got a better kind of fishing for you. I've got a better task that, in fact, their task is going to be to bring people into not a boat, but into the kingdom of God, into this reign. So he grabs, especially at the beginning, all these fishermen, maybe not really the most popular people in the town, but the Lord chooses them as the ones to follow him. We mentioned that uh, last week we heard from John's gospel and we had quite a different call of Andrew and Peter, which has caused some to say, well, how can this be? Or uh, are these two different stories? Are they contradictory? I think one way to to harmonize them, to, to reconcile those two, is to to maybe see a difference in simply coming to the Messiah to know him and to heed this call to follow him, to leave everything and follow him. It seems that he doesn't necessarily say this to everyone who is a follower of him. We hear at the end that there's a whole great group of crowds from all these different towns that are also going to follow Jesus. And uh, while some of them from time to time we hear in the Gospels don't believe in him, they, they fall away from him. At other times, these are all what we would call in our, our simple New Testament terms, believers in Jesus. They're believers in Christ. They're Christians. However, when he calls these men, Simon, Peter, James, and John, they are particularly called to follow him for the sake of being his apostles, to be those who are going to observe, learn from him throughout his whole ministry, and then go out and give testament to all that he has said and done and taught, as well as to his resurrection, chief of all. So perhaps Andrew, this disciple of John, peeled off and, and joined Christ. He also grabbed Simon to say, all right, maybe you didn't want to come follow John, but this guy you can't ignore. He's the Messiah. And here now he's called them, nope, you're no longer just going to uh, come and hear the lectures now and again. I want you to come and follow me and, and spend this whole lifestyle with me, in fact, in this unique calling as one of his 12. You had mentioned the advent of the kingdom and Jesus exceeding John's ministry by not only preaching, but also performing miracles, in particular in this text, healing. How do those go together? Yes. So, I mean, one of the themes that from both the traditional lecture and from the three-year lecture here, especially in year A, is that the Lord demonstrates his divine nature by his miraculous signs. So if we have the wedding at Cana is kind of one of the key readings that we sadly don't get to hear this year. The wedding at Cana shows, manifests his glory is the phrase that shows up in John's gospel. In the same way, his ministry exceeds John the Baptist, who doesn't seem to have performed miracles, or certainly it wasn't a focal point of his ministry. In Christ Jesus, it still doesn't seem to be the focal point, but it's constant. It's all over the place. It's worth extensive mention, even of all the various things he's able to heal. Nobody can do this, as even Nicodemus had to admit, unless God is with him. Or in fact, quite more than that, God is with us in Christ Jesus. I think it's very helpful to see also that these two activities, the healing and the preaching, which includes repentance and also includes 
proclaiming the gospel of his kingdom. All of this goes together. It would be dangerous, I think, to pit these against each other or almost to try and uh, look at one and say, well, these are both the task of the church. Rather, it's good to see that his preaching is what leads to his work. It's simply the Lord's nature to heal and to right what is wrong, to destroy sin, to be the master over sin wherever he goes. And that includes over all of sin's ramifications and effects in this world, in disease and everything else. But this is also the force of his preaching, is that it would take rotten people. It would take oppressed people. It would take people who are not in control of themselves and deliver them into the Lord's reign where they are able to continue, where in fact they have something good to proclaim, the good news, the gospel, where they have the joy that we heard about back in Isaiah. Do we sometimes pass over the fact that part of what Jesus is doing in this healing ministry is he's alleviating suffering and While we want to embrace Christian suffering, as the Apostle tells us to, this is a very small glimmer of the coming resurrection, isn't it? Yes, it's not by the Lord's design that the world is miserable. This is the world as we see it. There are many things that can strip our joy from us in this world. And we bear these things as Christians, but we don't really bear them as if they themselves are good. I mean, the chief among this, the last enemy, as the Bible calls it, is death. There's a way in which a Christian can speak about death and say, you know what? The Lord is able to work good from this. It is a, a blessed thing to depart this life and to be with Christ. Even Paul himself said that. And yet we never look at death as if it's a friendly or a good thing and limit it to that, right? As with so many false statements in the in the church when you begin to assume Christ Jesus or leave him out of the discussion you are always ignoring the best part so uh, death is not good that statement by itself makes no sense if you were to say in Christ death no longer is an enemy and in fact it's transformed it to be the means by which he brings us to himself as some of our hymns say now you said something quite different but the thing that makes all the difference is jesus himself so we see that here the point of the miracles is not simply anybody could come along and do this thing it'd be nice if there were some institution or some authority whether that's from the government or maybe from little groups of people that get together to do this that would right the wrongs of society in the world no rather christ jesus is the one who deserves our attention from this and anybody who looks at the signs and the wonders only and doesn't want to have jesus with his preaching, with his teaching, with his truth and his hope and his true identity. Well, those people actually end up falling away, or the Lord says he has no time for those people. To leave Christ out of it is to miss the point. What would you say about the appointed hymn of the day for this coming Sunday, O Christ, our true and only light? This is a great hymn. So it's by Johann Hermann. It's from the time of the Thirty Years' War, so kind of second or third generation after the Reformation. And it's one of our best mission and witness hymns, I think. It doesn't speak the way that we like to talk about missions now, which is mostly about our activity. Are we going to go answer the call? Are we going to get out to the people who are in trouble? Or maybe try to guilt us into it by talking about how desperate the situation is. 
I suppose this fits in exactly with what we just said about the work of, of alleviating suffering and to care for and to love those who are suffering. Our focus is to be on Christ, which is why then we are led to a life that does that as well. And I think this hymn does a fine job of focusing us on Jesus. He is the one who is the light. Therefore, it's in his nature to enlighten who is in darkness. And the whole hymn is cast as a prayer that the Lord would do just that, uh, that he would uh, bring his voice to those who are far away and haven't heard of him, that he would uh, help those who are lost in false teaching and delusions of any kind, that he would call the ones who have wandered away back into his salvation, that he would shine on the cold, those who've wandered away again, that he would confirm those who are weak or doubting in any way, and that they would then join with us, that we would all be one, united again. In a way, I think you could see this really tying the epistle into this gospel in Old Testament and all the rest of the readings that way as well. There's also a stanza that's missing. It's too bad. It was probably omitted because it talked about the deaf and the dumb, which is uh, people who aren't able to speak. And it talked about also those who are secretive in their faith, who are not confessing with their mouth what perhaps they have started to believe in their heart. That's a dangerous position to be in, um, to be trying to kind of live two lives and to speak with a double heart. The way that our text is speaking is that everybody who saw Jesus doing these miracles heard his preaching, and the fame of this spread all around. So nobody was uh, timid to speak about Christ, to speak about what Jesus of Nazareth was doing and preaching. I think it's also helpful to see from this hymn how the church prays for the lost, and that we're not ashamed to call them that. It's our habit to soften our language uh, in almost everything in our world today. And that includes in this, that we sometimes come up with other names for those people who are not in the church, unchurched, outside the church, not yet knowers of Jesus. And, and you've heard them all, I'm sure. All those are accurate statements. But there's something dark. There's something lost about that. In fact, it's our confession as Lutherans. That's really the way all of us were conceived and born into this world. It's not some great achievement of ours that's made us better or brighter than anybody. It's the fact that holy baptism has grabbed us and rescued us from the domain of darkness and brought us into his marvelous light. Our goal then, what drives us to be missionaries, whether that's a for, as a formal office of the church or simply as people who share the message of Christ, who proclaim the excellencies of this Lord that's brought us out of the darkness, is always the fact that apart from Christ Jesus, there is no salvation. There is no joy. There is no love in the church apart from Jesus. The kingdom is only at hand when Christ Jesus is the one who is reigning. And so it may seem stark or perhaps unpopular today to talk about the lost in that way, but it is accurate according to the Bible and certainly according to our hymns and our, our tradition in the Lutheran church as well. As I mentioned before, it shifted now. It's no longer for, for some uh, Gentile tribes up in uh, Anglia and Germania, which maybe are our ancestors, but it is particularly those people to whom the Lord came first. It's the Jewish people. This uh, hymn echoes the famous prayer for the Jews that was always uttered in the bidding prayer on Good Friday, which has fallen out of almost all hymnals since the tragedies of the Second World War. I know why people are sensitive about that, but I don't know why our prayers have fallen away 
this is just simply the, the, the truth of the Christian teaching is that if we, with the Lord, want all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth, and that is exclusively in Jesus Christ. No one comes to the Father except by me, Jesus says. But that's what spurs us to proclaim Christ as our true and our only light and not ours only, but all those who believe in him. Pastor Sean Denzer is Director of Worship for the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Sean, thanks for your time. My pleasure. In Hour 2 of Issues Etc., we'll talk about supporting families by supporting men with Delano Squires of the DeVos Center for Life, Religion, and Family at the Heritage Foundation. Then we'll be teaching a Sunday school lesson with Pastor Tom Baker of Law and Gospel. We'll be talking about Jesus the Good Shepherd in John 10 and Psalm 23. Listen weekday afternoons to Pastor Todd Wilkin and guests on Issues Etc. Issues Etc. is a listener-supported program. Your financial support is vital for the continuation and expansion of this worldwide outreach. Our mailing address, Issues Etc., P.O. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. You can also donate at our website, issuesetc.org. Issues Etc., is a production of LPR, Lutheran Public Radio. You're invited to a special life service Sunday afternoon at 3 on January 22nd at St. Paul Lutheran Church in Columbia, Illinois. Pastor Michael Salamink, Executive Director of Lutherans for Life, will be the guest preacher. What does Jesus have to do with life issues? Find out at a life service Sunday afternoon at 3, January 22nd at St. Paul Lutheran Church in Columbia, Illinois. Learn more at sidadvocatesforlife.com.